The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks getting caught in the whipsaw action following the Fed's latest rate hike. And more volatility looks on tap today with futures moving between gains and losses. The central bank digging in further on its fight against inflation, raising interest rates by another three quarters of 1% or 75 basis points. Former Morgan Stanley Asia Chairman Stephen Roach lays out why he says there's more tightening coming down the line. Russians taking to the streets, condemning Vladimir Putin's order to mobilize 300,000 troops for the war in Ukraine as world leaders scramble to address these latest provocations. Meta platforms reportedly slashing staff as the company, parent company of Facebook races to get ahead of growing macroeconomic headwinds. And then your morning RBI, random but interesting, and the real life impact of the Fed's rate hikes on you and your money and what you pay for things like credit card debt. It's Thursday, September 22nd. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today. Let's kick off the hour with a check on the markets and your money in the wake of that big Fed rate hike yesterday. Stock futures right now are actually positive. They've moved up and are gaining some steam. It's modest compared to yesterday's losses. However, what you're seeing is a Dow implied higher by 145 points. The S&P implied higher by 15 and the Nasdaq up by just about 43 Also checking on the bond market. Yields right now very much a focus after yesterday's moves. We're seeing a little bit of a tick to the upside from yesterday. Just about 3.54% for the 10-year note yield. Two-year note yield now 4.1%. We continue to see moves higher in that two-year note side of things, which does tend to track a little bit more closely to the Fed interest rate picture. Now, in the oil market, Right now, the economic condition of the world is the story, but crude prices right now are showing some signs of life, up about one and a quarter percent, a dollar upside, $83.99 for U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI crude. Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, $90.78, up nearly a dollar, roughly one percent gain there as well. In cryptocurrencies, some continued pressure, although we're still hovering just below that 20,000 mark, 19,199, the last trade for Bitcoin, up about one third of 1%. Meanwhile, Ethereum prices continue to show some near term to medium term downside after that big software upgrade, the merge, so to speak, as they call it, down about three and a half percent, $1,289, the last trade there. Let's now go worldwide as investors await another, another big rate decision from another central bank, Karen Cho is in London with the latest on the European market action. And it looks like a bit of a catch-up trade, Karen. 
Good morning, Dom. I'm going to call it the domino effect from central banks over this side of the world in reaction to the Fed. We've already had moves from the Swiss National Bank, the SNB. They have moved by 75 basis points, taking the rate positive to just half of a percent. Norway has moved by 50 basis points, and we're waiting it up for the Bank of England, likely to move by 50 basis points as well today to 2.25 percent, which would leave us shy by about near on 1 percent from the Fed at this point. But take a look at markets. We are seeing losses across on many of the markets. We are sliding, you can see on the French market, to the tune of half of 1%. But I would say behind this backdrop, banks are doing some heavy lifting. We've got gains of roughly about 1% for the sector. And that is in reaction to this move on rates where, don't forget, we've been battling the headwinds of negative rates for a long time in Europe. And let me push on and take you to what we're seeing on foreign exchange markets, because I mentioned the Swiss National Bank decision that increased by 75 basis points. But it may have come with some intervention in the market as well to uh, intervene and bring that Swiss French lower. We are seeing fairly sizable moves. We haven't had any confirmation here from the central bank, but so far you can see a dollar gaining versus the Swiss. So we have stepped lower on that Swiss franc to allow potentially some support for that action from the central bank hawkish moves. The dollar yen rate's also significant. We have seen the first intervention by the Bank of Japan since 1998 on the back of what was a very dovish meeting by the central bank there. In the opposite view versus other central banks that have been very hawkish with their moves, it is staying ultra loose at this point. So you've seen them step into the market and that's having an impact. 142.20 at this stage. Don, back to you. All right, Karen Cho in London, thank you very much. Let's dive now further into the Fed's latest rate hike and the market reaction with Greg Hahn, President and Chief Investment Officer at Winthrop Capital Management. Also, Alfredo Romero, economist and CEO of Impact Analytics. Uh, Maybe, Alfredo, we'll start with you on that kind of bigger picture move here. We got kind of what was expected. The futures market had priced in an 84 percent chance we were going to get 75 basis points. There was an outside shot. We would get a full 100 basis points or one full percent. Take us through why the markets, you think, reacted the way that they did if the economic narrative hadn't changed all that much from, say, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Well, you're exactly right. The uh, Federal Reserve ended up doing what they told us uh, ahead of time that they were going to do. They were going to increase the, uh, the rate again by uh, 75 basis points. I think the market reaction had nothing to do with that. It had to do with the change, with the, with the change in the posture of the dot plot, and by telling us that they're not only going to continue increasing the uh, Federal uh, Funds rate a little more, they're going to continue doing so until they see clear signs that inflation is receding. So that's a good point, Alfredo. That was probably what drove it, the dot plots. We are seeing now what Fed experts and central bankers expect to be a higher than we thought terminal rate for where things are going to end up in terms of rates this year. And perhaps that momentum takes over to next year, Greg. If you do have that kind of an interest rate tightening cycle in play and the markets are expecting it, what can we expect from markets now if we already know this is what's going to happen? Yeah, Dom, higher, higher interest rates are going to mean a shift in valuations, both for equities and fixed income. And we're seeing that right now. So we're seeing, um, you know, 10 year yields on corporates at 5% and municipal bonds at four and a quarter. I mean, investors can now invest and really earn income, which they haven't been able to really in about 15 years. So we're, we're going to see a shift in valuations, and it's going to come through liquid assets and non-liquid assets. So we're, we're kind of in this period with commercial real estate where cap rates haven't really adjusted higher like we've seen in the liquid markets. 
and it's been real quiet. So price discovery in some of the illiquid asset classes, it's going to be problematic. We're also going to see a shift in credit quality. So we, we would expect to see some deterioration in credit and that'll probably come through the CLO, the leverage loan market. All right. So, so I, I'm, I'm very glad, Greg, that you brought that up because th- this is a repricing. And this is what many traders and investors I've spoken to yeah. have talked about, that, that this is by no means panic. We've lost a lot mm-hmm. of ground in the market, but it hasn't been like we flushed out a thousand or two thousand points at a time in the Dow or that we've risen that kind of uh, amount on the other side. It's been this kind of revaluation. We're down a percent, a percent and a half, up a half a percent, down another one percent. That kind of market action, does that scream repricing to you that that this is just a new regime where higher rates mean that stock prices and other assets have to go lower because risk free rates are just so much better now? Yes. And I think you hit on it that this is a new monetary regime that we're working through. Monetary regimes last on average around 15 years. And what we're used to, investors are used to the Fed coming in and bailing out the market. And they've done it since the financial crisis in 2008. And we think, you know, this is this is actually the Fed trying to earn its credibility back by by really talking a book that's going to say we're in this for the long haul, expect rates to continue to move higher. And, and they're willing to push this economy into a recession to do it. And the, 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 the amazing thing that we're watching right now is that labor market is just so strong. We've got a fifth, you know, this, this labor market's, we haven't seen this strength in 50 years. And so to see what's gonna, about to happen with layoffs, we just saw Ford announce layoffs. We're going to see shifts in business models to, to support it. But that's, that's really what companies have to do to support margins, to support profitability, to maintain valuations in, the, in, a, in a market that's shifting. It's now, just natural market movements. So, so Alfredo, a, a, an interesting point being brought up there that the jobs market, we're seeing anecdotal signs for sure, headlines, certainly in technology and certainly in some places in, in, in the industrial complex in America, where job cuts are coming or have already happened. This, I mean, it's only crazy because the jobs market is still relatively strong by many measures. And we've just seen through union contracts and everything else that wages keep rising. The knock is that they're not keeping up with inflation. So is this a scenario where we're going to go into a recession, but still not have material weakness in the jobs market shaping around that? Well, I think the chairman said it uh, yesterday, you know, this may be a scenario where we have a recession with growth. Uh, I think they finally abandoned this uh, talk of their soft lending, and I think they're a little more clear in the fact that they had caused a little bit of pain in Wall Street, and the pain is about to come for Main Street. And if they can keep the unemployment rate between 4.5 and 5%, that would be just, not, you know, uh, upwards of 2 million jobs lost, that, that might be just enough for the strength of the uh, job market to keep the economy afloat and not cause a, a severe recession like before. All right. So interesting moves here for sure by the central bank. Greg Hahn, Alfredo Romero, thank you both very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Let's get a check on some of your other top morning stories here. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Good morning, Dom. FTX is in talks with potential investors to raise up to $1 billion in new funding. The potential infusion into Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto firm would give it a valuation of about $32 billion. That's in line with prior financing earlier this year. And sources tell CNBC negotiations are ongoing and the terms could change. During crypto's downturn, FTX has been on a buying spree of crypto assets at a discount. And FTX spokesperson declined to comment. 
Credit Suisse is reportedly weighing plans to split up its investment bank into three units. According to the Financial Times, the Swiss lender hopes to sell profitable units to avoid a damaging capital raise. The FT adds the move would involve resurrecting a bad bank holding pen for risky assets. Credit Suisse is fighting to emerge from three years of continued scandals. And the FTC is rejecting Amazon's bid to end the agency's demand that CEO Andy Jazzy and founder Jeff Bezos testify. The FTC is looking at the company's prime service as well as other subscription programs and are looking for both men to speak at investigation hearings. Amazon has previously called the request burdensome. The FTC says Amazon must comply with its demand no later than October 7th, Dom. All right, Silvana Hinnell, thank you very much for those headlines. When we come back on the show, former Morgan Stanley Asia chairman Stephen Roach is here to parse through the Fed's latest rate hike and why he says a U.S. recession is looking more likely. Plus, world leaders increasingly condemning Russia following its new military ramp up in Ukraine. The moves still in play to curb Moscow's growing aggressions coming up. And then later on, after 99 days, 99 of them, the easing pain at the pump coming to a stop. A look at whether the uptick in gasoline prices is temporary or a sign of things to come. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com/findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask, and these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a realtor can help answer. Because realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange to a developing story this morning and the ongoing war of words and war of everything between Moscow and the West in the wake of Vladimir Putin's decision to initiate Russia's first military mobilization since World War II. G7 foreign ministers announcing overnight they will pursue more sanctions against Moscow following Putin's order. The development coming after President Biden condemned Russia's latest escalation during a speech at the U.N. General Assembly just yesterday. Let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. No more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. Joining me now with what this could mean for investors and the next steps for the U.S. and its allies is Oliver Wyman's head of risk and public policy. 
Daniel Tannenbaum. He's also a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council and a former Treasury official. You've gotten a lot of perspective over the years, Dan, with regard to how things shake out with situations like this. Is the U.S. right now in a situation where they have to be more aggressive against Russia and Vladimir Putin? You know, and it it is pretty remarkable. We're just coming up on seven months uh, since the invasion, uh, which, again, was was telegraphed for a while, but no one really thought Putin would do it. This has been a challenge in the situation where the EU really has to be the tip of the spear. It's in their backyard. The U.S. has been working extremely closely with its allies in the U.K. and Europe. But the U.S. has to be somewhat measured in its response. I, I do think with every passing move that President Putin makes just further galvanizes the resolve of the West. And this pending eighth round of EU sanctions, again, there's still more in the tank. There's still powder that was kept dry to further escalate things in terms of isolation of Russia. The isolation of Russia from the West is almost a given. It's fairly consensus right now. What's not consensus is other places in the world, especially those in perhaps the Middle East, And East Asia, I'm thinking specifically about places like India and China, two of the biggest economies in the world that are still China, maybe not so much on the fence. They're kind of aligning with 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 Putin right now, but showing some signs of maybe cracking in that relationship. India is now maybe on the fence a little bit more. How important is it to get everybody involved in condemning Vladimir Putin? I think everyone has a role to play, maybe not get him totally involved. China is a bit unique, but you even saw reporting last night that North Korea is backing away from reports that they were supporting Russia. So, I mean, we've had Treasury officials from the U.S. have traveled to India, to the Middle East, uh, to Turkey, to put those countries on notice that your firms will be subject to sanctions. Earlier this week, we saw a handful of Turkish banks pull out of the Russian payment system Mir as the U.S. increased sanctions last week. So I don't know if everyone needs to totally be rowing in the same direction, but directionally everyone has a role to play with China. It's don't really provide material support economically from a military standpoint. For India, the UAE, Turkey, the countries known to still be transacting with Russian businesses, I think they have a different opportunity to to begin winding back some of that activity. You know, Dan, you know, I work in business news. We're a business news network. And for that reason, we we keep abreast of all of these headlines, and we kind of focus them towards how they impact economies and markets. The sense I get right now as a journalist in business news is that we are paying way more attention and the markets are very much more skittish about interest rate policy and the Fed than they are about bullets and missiles in a very sensitive part of the world. Is, are we due for more volatility because of this, or are the markets focusing on the right things right now? Well, I think you saw movements a few months ago when Russia began messing about with pipelines and gas flows. And, you know, it's been made clear that humanity will find a way to find energy and commodities outside of Russia. I think once there began to be comfort in at least the beginnings of a plan and a ban in in the importation of certain Russian energy, that it did begin to numb the market's reaction a bit to some of these moves because you expected them to be shut out. But there's still a lot of financing happening of Russian-related activity. Let's remember, all ag-related activity is not sanctioned. So Russia could still transact on the open market, but there's still more room for businesses to wind down Russian-related activity, which could have broader market impact. But seven months into this, this is going to be... We're going to be here for the long run. These sanctions are like a slow bleed 
for the Russian economy as we watch with further rounds of military support for Ukraine and further Western sanctions against Russia. Dan Tannenbaum with the latest there on Russia and Ukraine. Thank you very much and good to see you in studio, sir. All right. Well, still on deck for the show. General Motors is pulling the plug on reservations for the new lineup of electrified Hummers. The big demand the automaker has seen for one of the key offerings in its EV ambitions. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. The streak is over. After 99 straight days of falling prices, the nationwide average for regular unleaded gasoline ticked up by a penny yesterday to $3.68 a gallon. That's according to AAA, well off the record high of $5.02 that we saw back in mid-June. Now, the 14-week decline was the longest declining streak since 2015. Today, prices are holding steady at that average of $3.68 a gallon. But many analysts believe gasoline is more likely to rise than fall in the coming months. But several factors could mess with those predictions. A recession that reduces fuel demand, an escalation in Russia's war in Ukraine, or we haven't talked about it yet, a major hurricane possibly disrupting refineries along the Gulf Coast. So let's get some insight now with Denton Cinquegrana, chief oil analyst at the Oil Price Information Service. You know them as Opus. So Denton, gasoline prices, I know because, you know, right before I got to work today, I filled up here in New Jersey. It was $3.29 a gallon. That's well below where it was just months ago. So take me through what the thinking is here. Why are prices maybe headed higher from here? Yeah, well, we've had actually a, a pretty run, a run of a little bit of bad luck with some refineries. Uh, you probably saw yesterday or actually uh, Tuesday evening, there was a fire out of a refinery in Ohio. And we're also getting into that maintenance season. So the kind of margin for error for refining operations gets gets a little bit thinner. So we're still in a supply situation where gasoline inventories throughout the United States are well below where they might normally be. Uh, California is a real tough spot right now as it kind of always is. So we're watching refining, refining action right now. Uh, so far, you know, things are, there's, a, there's a fine line, but for the time being, uh, gasoline supplies are getting a little bit tight. So as an oil analyst, you are more focused currently on the supply side of the economic equation as opposed to demand. A little bit of both, actually. So we do get uh, data from a bunch of stations around the country. And right now, we're seeing gasoline demand that is below where we were a year ago. Uh, on a weekly basis, it, it could be pretty choppy. But we're running 4 or 5% below year-ago levels. We're even running below 2020, September 2020 levels, which is, which is kind of interesting. But I think people are, are driving a little bit less. So that could keep a, a, a lid on prices. So in the short term, I think demand has, has an impact as well. And we're also getting into the fall. Uh, I think at 9.03 tonight begins fall. Uh, so we get into that season where there's less driving going on. So less driving going on. 
There is also, I mean, we talk about, I mean, it's nuanced and maybe a little in the weeds, but it does matter. We talk about this kind of refining aspect of everything, about, about these switches that we see during the course of the year between certain blends of fuel. One's geared more towards summer. One gears more, more towards fall and winter. I thought that the summer one was the more expensive, and now that we should be going into the fall winter that it's less expensive. Is that really the case? No, it, it absolutely is the case. And we, we've just seen so much market volatility over the course of the summer that, you know, the price had nothing, no choice but to move lower, basically. But, uh, you know, to put that summer winter blend into context, think about, you know, kind of baking a cake, right? You have eggs, you have milk, uh, flour, but in the summertime, say you need gluten free flour, which is more expensive versus all purpose flour that you could use in the wintertime. So that summer versus winter being winter being cheaper is certainly a factor. Uh, but again, we had so much market volatility during the summertime that it was it was difficult for the price to even stay where it was. Uh, even with our little kind of streak of two days of prices moving higher, uh, I, I don't think we're in a we're in a trend where prices are going to shoot back up to the four fifty five dollar uh, price area that we saw in early in the summer. Why are oil prices continuing to fall? I, I understand that there's an economic narrative here. I understand that central banks around the world are raising rates, and you know that's going to kind of take a little bit of the heat off of some of these commodity markets. But can we expect any kind of a bottoming in oil prices anytime soon, or is this going to be a downtrend for a while? If there is a global recession at play, yeah. If there is that global recession at play, I do think we see a little bit more downside. Uh, we've seen headlines about the Biden administration, you know, kind of interested in refilling the SPR at about eighty dollars. We've seen headlines about Saudi Arabia being uh, pleased with prices in in the ninety plus area. So maybe we kind of fall into a little bit of a, a, a non-volatile range between $80 and $90 here in the short term. Uh, I think there's, that's a possibility. But for the most part, I think we're, we're kind of biased a bit lower. And even though supplies look to be a, a little bit tight on oil, uh, you know, I, I think the, the big macro picture is, is kind of overweighing that right now. And there's a, a dollar oil correlation. As we all know, the dollar is so much stronger than it has been in recent years. And usually it's, it's an inverse correlation. It doesn't happen every day, but the fact of the matter is the dollar is very strong, and that usually keeps a lid on oil prices as well. All right. Denton Cinquegrana at the Oil Price Information Service. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Still on deck for the show, former Morgan Stanley Asia chairman Stephen Roach breaks down the Fed's latest rate hike and how long the central bank will keep up its hawkish path policy. And a reminder, be sure to sign up for the most powerful investment event of the year. We're talking CNBC's Delivering Alpha. It returns on September 28th to New York City in person. Just go over to DeliveringAlpha.com to register a massive slew of big-name speakers, as you're seeing there. We'll be right back after this. The Fed's latest rate hike decision, fueling fresh volatility in the markets. Futures following yesterday's action with some whipsaw moves. Former Morgan Stanley Asia chairman Stephen Roach is standing by to break down the central bank's latest actions. Meta platforms reportedly reducing headcount as it faces mounting challenges amid tech's growing slowdown. And speaking of tech, European regulators launching a fresh probe into Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, taking a closer look at their dominance in cloud computing. It's Thursday, September 22nd. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. 
Welcome back to the show. I am Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan on this Thursday morning. Let's get right to the markets and your money as we are at 5.32 a.m. Eastern time. You can see futures pointing to gains at the opening bell. They're modest after yesterday's losses, but still, we're Dow, uh, the Dow is implied higher by 100 points, the S&P higher by 9, and the Nasdaq higher by 25, so a little bit more stable. Now to the Federal Reserve and its latest 75 basis point or three quarters of 1% rate hike, bringing its federal funds rate to a range between 3 and 3.25 percent. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell indicating the central bank will keep hiking above the current level. And projections show an increase of 1.25, one and a quarter percentage points over the central bank's remaining two policy meetings this year. Again, and that is not off the table. Let's talk more about this with Stephen Roach, former Morgan Stanley Asia chairman. He's currently a senior fellow at Yale University's Paul Tsai, China Center. Uh, Professor, this move was widely expected, but this is not enough to dampen the inflationary picture. So say the projections. Why is it now that we need to focus so much more on these anticipated rate hikes? I thought we've done enough. Well, Dom, thanks again for having me on. We've we've done a lot. Uh, And this is, of course, the, the most aggressive um, three steps consecutively of monetary tightening since uh, the um, uh, early 1980s under Paul Volcker. But the nominal federal funds rate that you just um, identified as being roughly a 3.1 percent is <clears throat> still five percentage points below the year-over-year CPI inflation rate. And you can't control inflation uh, with a sharply negative real inflation. So, got to be uh, disciplined, uh, focused, and determined to get the nominal federal funds rate above the CPI inflation rate. And, you know, everybody is hoping, uh, and Jerome Powell has been uh, uh, notable for being the most hopeful that the CPI would fade um, uh, spontaneously, that has been a disappointing uh, forecast. So, uh, you know, I'd say the Fed is at best uh, halfway done and um, is going to end up taking the federal funds rate um, well above 5%, which is above its latest dot plot projection, and possibly uh, up to 6% uh, to contain inflation. So, 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 Stephen, I, this is interesting. We're showing a sequence of charts here that kind of have been matching up to some of the data points you talked about. One of them was looking at the core consumer price index, X fuel and you know fuel and and food, and food prices, and what it shows is this kind of leveling out and rolling over. They, the conventional wisdom is that there is a lag in terms of effect when it comes to monetary policy. Some say anywhere from 6 to 12, maybe even more months down the line. So when you say that you think the Fed funds rate has to go to 5% and maybe even beyond in the coming months and quarters, when are we going to see that actually play out? It could be maybe 2024, 25. Is, is, is that the thinking? Well, first of all, Dom, I, I understand the point you're making on judging the federal funds rate relative to uh, the core CPI. Uh, I am old enough to um, remember my experience when I first got out of grad school working at the Fed under Arthur Burns, 
when we did not have a core CPI. But he made us on the staff uh, construct the first core CPI. And we kept, kept taking things out that we thought were transitory. That was a huge mistake. Burns first had us take out uh, oil because of the uh, the oil embargo, then food because of some vanishing uh, anchovies off the coast of Peru. And then we took out home ownership, used cars, women's jewelry, you name it. We took it out. Uh, and the Fed was forever behind the curve. So, you know, I'm suspicious of this idea that uh, the, the core is the um, the absolute best way to gauge uh, the, the stance of the Fed. And I prefer to look at the headline CPI, and that keeps the Fed erring on the side of being um, wary of this temporary uh, inflation projection that uh, misled them from the start under Jerome Powell. Now, now Stephen, I mean, uh, one of the things that the Fed has that many other central banks around the world don't have, uh, the Fed has a dual mandate. It's got to focus on price stability as, as well as employment. Right now, the employment picture, I mean, there's no doubt there's some stress in, in, in the environment right now, but we're still seeing people have to pay more money. Employers pay more, more, more money for workers. We're still seeing, you know, people, the unemployment rate at, at, at kind of near cycle lows at this point right now. The, the whole idea of a recession in the past has been it's a recession when your neighbor loses their job. It's a depression when you lose yours. Right. That, that's the old saying. Is the, job market, is the job market right now something that the Fed feels like it has the latitude to play with, and I use that tongue-in-cheek, to tackle inflation because that is pervasively the, the, the worst problem? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there is a dual mandate, but right now the weight is on one aspect of the dual mandate, and that is dealing with inflation and the record lows uh, of uh, unemployment in the U.S. labor market give them much, much greater discretion to focus on this uh, second aspect of the mandate that they have let get away from them. So they have to move uh, against um, uh, inflation and they have to do it despite uh, what is obviously going to be political flack from um, uh, many members of um, uh, the Congress, uh, some of whom I saw on uh, the airwaves uh, last night already sounding a warning that the Fed cannot uh, allow the unemployment rate to rise at all. Now, Professor, we've just got a few moments left here. One simple question. Is America in a recession right now or not? No, we're not in a recession right now, but we are headed toward recession. We need an, a, an aggressive, further uh, rate hike by the central bank. And that, with a lag, will take the U.S. economy into recession uh, probably in, in 2023. All right, Professor Stephen Roach, thank you very much, sir. Always great to get your thoughts. Have a nice day, sir. Thank you. All right, let's get a check on some of your morning's top stories here. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Hi, Don. Well, Meta Platforms is reportedly quietly reducing its staffing levels as part of a cost-cutting push. According to the Wall Street Journal, Facebook's parent company is planning to cut expenses by at least 10 percent in the coming months, in part by cutting jobs. The journal says Meta is doing so by reorganizing departments and giving affected employees a limited window to apply for other roles within the company. The paper adds the move is part of a broader strategy to handle stalling growth and growing competition. 
British regulators announcing they're launching a probe into Amazon, Microsoft and Alphabet's Google. The focus is on cloud services and the three companies dominance in the sector, accounting for more than 80 percent of the revenue. Regulators expect a final report on the matter within the next year. And General Motors says it will close reservations for its electric Hummer pickup truck and the upcoming SUV version of the vehicle. The company says more than 90,000 of the vehicles have been reserved. GM's decision follows Ford shutting down reservations for its electric F-150 pickup after hitting roughly 200,000 units, Dom. Ravana Hinal, thank you very much for those headlines. Coming up on the show, more on the Fed's rate hike decision with your morning RBI and what it all means for your money and what you pay on your loans. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for something random but interesting. And for that, we send it out to Brian Sullivan for RBI. Today, your morning RBI is about interest rates and borrowing costs. We talked a lot about national debt the other day. Now let's talk about something closer to home, your borrowing costs. Our crack team at CBC put together a very helpful and maybe painful look at just how far borrowing costs have risen in just six months. Mortgage rates, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage, 3.85 back in March, seems downright quaint. Freddie Mac says it's now about 6% and probably going higher. Home equity lines of credit known as HELOCs are even higher on 6.5%. Credit card costs are also spiking up more than 1.5% on average in six months. You want to buy a car? Well, not only are prices for new and used cars still very high, but now the borrowing costs are going up as well. Edmonds reports you may be paying more than 10% for a used car loan. I didn't, I didn't like that number. I had to double check it. It's right there on their website. And it's all because the Fed funds rate has surged from 0.2% to 2.3%. So what exactly might this mean to you or other American consumers? Let's put it into perspective, shall we? A 30-year, 3.5% mortgage on a $400,000 house, 20% down, would be $1,720 per month. The same situation, but with a 6.2% mortgage, sends that monthly payment up more than $500, $2,250. WalletHub says the rise in rates and debt has increased the cost of existing credit card debt by $15.5 billion this year, and it's going to go up another $5 billion with the Fed rate hikes yesterday. The average rate in a credit card? more than 18 percent, the highest since 1996, all at a time when credit card debt is more than 900 billion bucks. Now, thankfully, wage gains may help folks manage these higher costs. But if you wonder why we focus so much on the Fed and rates here on CNBC, this is why it impacts everything. Of course, if you have debt and it may ultimately hit the entire American economy. Time will tell. Random and important. All right. Thank you very much, Brian Sullivan. And by the way, WalletHub, that same study, says that all the rate hikes from the Fed from March until now is going to have credit card users paying roughly about $21 billion more in interest payments. So it definitely is random but interesting for sure. On deck for the show, stock seeing continued whipsaw trading on the back of that Fed rate decision. RBC's Amy Wu Silverman dives into what's fueling that volatility, that trading action coming up next. And throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, CNBC is celebrating our teammates and our contributors. As we head out to break, here is Arizona Coyotes president and CEO Javier Gutierrez. 
One thing I, I definitely have always talked about is the opportunity to do for others. And that's what I try to share uh, with so many, especially young Latinos and Latinas, is that in their life and in their career, they can really make an impact and really make a change. And not only that, but they, but they have that responsibility uh, and uh, to do that, to use their voice, to use their platform. It can happen in so many different ways. You'll end up, you know, potentially running a National Hockey League team. And yet, what am I able to do is, is really open doors for others, bring diverse voices to the seat of decision-making, and really making an impact. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's take a look at futures right now because we've lost a little bit of steam in just the last hour over here. We are now mixed. The Dow Jones implied higher by just about 35 to 40 points. The S&P now slightly lower, down about two points implied at the opening bell, and the Nasdaq down by 18. It's not a lot, but remember, Massive moves to the downside yesterday. Let's dive a little further into the futures action with the Dow Jones specifically, especially given the Fed interest rate decision. Now, maybe no surprise, 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern time right here was where all the volatility happened around the Fed rate announcement. Now, the crazy part about this is these are Dow futures. We saw from right before the announcement came out, we saw it move lower by roughly 400 points or thereabouts in the Dow futures, only to see them rise huge in just the 20 or so minutes after that, and then all of a sudden down to where we were here. Now, at the lows of the session, Dow futures were about 900 points below where they were before the Fed announcement. So this is a lot of volatility. Now, taking a look at the VIX, speaking of volatility, the gauge of how stock market volatility manifests itself on the S&P 500, this is now a CBOE volatility index roughly around 27 to 28. This is elevated compared to norms, but it's still well below where it was earlier this year after Russia invaded Ukraine and certainly a lot lower than it was during the pandemic market volatility that we saw in the spring of 2020. So what does it all mean? Joining me now is Amy Wu Silverman, equity derivative strategist and managing director at RBC Capital Markets. Uh, You know, Amy, we turn to you because you're an options expert. When we look at the VIX, A lot of folks say, oh, I don't know how much you can glean from the VIX. But what it can show you is relative volatility to other points in time. This does not seem like a very volatile time in the markets whatsoever compared to what we've seen in just the last few years. Yeah, good morning. So, you know, look, as you said, a VIX with a 27 handle is quite high. So if you pulled that chart, you know, back five years, 10 years, 20 years, the average VIX level is actually floating more around 20. Obviously, when you have a pandemic situation where, frankly, nobody knew what was going to happen, a VIX of 80 in history is obviously the peak, but it was also very short-lived. For a sustainable period to be kind of floating above these 20 VIX levels is quite high. But I will tell you what has been interesting since yesterday is typically after Jerome Powell speaks, VIX usually drops about 5 to 6%. That's at least been true since uh, this whole year in terms of when he speaks. So the fact that, you know, we've continued to move higher already is a little different. And it's much more similar to how stocks and volatility behaved during Jackson Hole. Now, so, so interesting you bring up Jackson Hole. It was kind of like the kickoff into what could have been arguably a, a more volatile fall season. But there are also seasonal aspects to this time of the market, right? September, October tend to be a little bit more volatile. And then we kind of set ourselves up maybe for a bit of a year-end rally, kind of post-Thanksgiving into the new year. Is that how you see things playing out this time around? 
I do. I think, you know, in some ways, investors have been a little bit mired because of the pandemic, Tom. And I think we are sort of moving out of this pandemic era into back to a normalized playbook, at least for volatility. So if you look past to the decade, you know, September and October is when VIX picks up. And then not too surprisingly, you hit Thanksgiving and Christmas. And obviously, things slow down, volume slow down, volatility slows down. But right now, you know, what we're looking for, which is critical, is another earnings season, your last one this year. Uh, companies potentially provide some sort of forward guidance for next year. That's extremely important. And then, of course, you have this floating tail risk right now with escalation in Russia and Ukraine. We just don't know how to price events like that. And in particular, options tend to be very poor at pricing geopolitical events. So it, if options are poor at pricing that aspect of it, there's got to be places that they are better at pricing at, right? And, and maybe one of those things is risk-free rates going higher the way that they are. It is in seeing uh, economic projections play out the way that they are. And it is in maybe some ways individual stock stories playing out the way that they do. In this kind of a volatility regime, is there a strategy that you can put into place to either protect yourself or maybe even profit from some of that volatility? We think so. The, you know, the interesting thing and the good thing about options is you can create structures to both buy and sell that, that essentially can help you in any regime. You just have to obviously identify what that regime is first. Look, Dom, one, one thing we've been saying is you have to be extremely tactical right now because on an objective level, volatility is still expensive. So you want to be holding shorter-term trades ahead of events, so ahead of an earnings catalyst, for instance, or ahead of you know a major macro catalyst. As we approach earnings, I think if you're going to start hedging some of these names, you're already seeing that pickup in demand for put options in those single names. And likely, I think that continues into earnings season. On the macro level, if you're going to carry, again, those hedges, I think you construct things through spreads. So owning an at-the-money put spread, but also selling an out-of-the-money put spread. And that helps cheapen some of your costs as you look to specific events uh, that you can help play out. Now, now uh, just to kind of put it in, in layman's terms, what you're saying is that with elevated volatility, buying some of that insurance protection for the up and downside is expensive, but you can cheapen it by selling an expensive option along with it as part of a structure where are you seeing more of that activity play out? Where, where are the profitable trades that you're seeing play out right now? So it, it's going to surprise you because of how uncertain the environment is. But a lot of what we're seeing right now, even as the VIX picks up, is more volatility sellers stepping in. And, and it's not too surprising because if you think about how the year has played out, sure, we've had a drawdown right as we headed into March, but it was very orderly in the sense that the market slowly trended downwards and then slowly trended upwards. And essentially, what that has allowed investors to do is to sell volatility, collect some yield, and perhaps use it to fund other elements in the market that they're more concerned about. So one at one aspect we've talked about is in energy, there's been you know, kind of market outperformance relative to other sectors. And if you're going to sell calls there, collect yield, you can use that premium, perhaps fund other aspects of the market where you might expect a down move. You know, should there be an escalation uh, in Russia, Ukraine, should the rates volatility increase? All right. Amy Wu Silverman with the options action. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. All right, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Markets right now, again, trying to stay stable. The Dow is implied higher by just about 50 points right now. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. We'll see you tomorrow. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.